You guys be seated. We're going to do something just a little bit different today. Uh, We've been in John 17. This will be our last day in John 17. And when we got together as a preaching team looking at the series several months ago, we noticed something about this chapter and the way Jesus prays. Uh, Jesus starts in the first five verses praying for glory, that, that the same glory that the Father has given to him, that he would give back to the Father. And it really was really a call to worship for us to see that that's our primary role um, in, on the earth is to glorify God. And then after that, Jesus begins to pray for the sanctification of those who already believe. That's the spiritual growth of the church. He's praying for what we call biblical community, that the gospel would transform us as his people. And so we asked Nick. Nick preached, our community pastor, last Sunday because of that. And so now as we made it to the last six verses or so of chapter 17, Jesus begins to pray for this mission that we're on as a church. A mission that starts, first of all, inside the church with our unity, but extends beyond the walls, outside the walls of the church. As you and I, we we interact with the world as witnesses, as representatives of God, that those who don't currently believe might come to believe in Christ and become part of the unified family of God. And so we asked Jeff Rathbun, our mission pastor, to preach today on these last six verses of chapter 17. So with that being said, would you join me in welcoming Jeff Rathbun, mission pastor? Come up and bring us God's word. Jeff, it's all you. Well, thank you, Jason, for reading God's word for us today and for praying. And I want to thank the worship team for leading us in worship today. It was was really good. Um, Like Jason mentioned, we are going to be uh, wrapping up John 17, so you guys can go ahead and turn there. If you have your Bibles or if you're going to use a phone or tablet or, you know, whatever type of device you're going to be looking at for reading God's word. If I haven't had the chance, uh, an opportunity to meet you yet, my name is Jeff Rathbun. Like Jason said, I'm the mission pastor here and um, I'm really excited about being able to preach to you guys and share God's word with you today. But I do need to let you know something. Um, When Jason was doing a fantastic job setting me up for this sermon, he took essentially my entire introduction. So um, we're going to shift just a minute, and I'm going to uh, just remind everybody and kind of do a little advertisement announcement about our SR Mission Conference that's going to be coming up on September 17th. Um, It's going to be looking at everyday mission, and so if learning more about what it means to live on mission in your everyday life, then this is definitely a conference you want to be registered and signed up for. Uh, Like I said, it's going to be on September 17th. It's going to be a fun night of fellowship and worship and just learning how we can actively take part in living God's mission here in our community. And so uh, you can register for that at srchurch.tv. So that being said, John 17, verse 20. Let's just jump right in. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, like Jason said in my introduction a moment ago, um, that the first couple verses in John 17, Jesus was praying about glorifying the Father, the Father glorifying the Son, and this reciprocal relationship that takes place between the Father and the Son, glorifying each other. And then in the next chunk of the chapter that Nick preached on last week, we did see that Jesus is praying for the disciples to be kept and sanctified by the Father. But when we get to verse 20, Jesus has this shift in who he's praying for. 
he is no longer praying only for the 11 disciples, but he's also praying for those who Jesus says will come after them and believe in Christ through their words. Now this is important because essentially what Jesus is saying is that the disciples are going to be faithful to share the gospel. They're gonna be faithful to take the Great Commission uh, seriously and take the gospel out into the world. And as the gospel is spreading throughout the world, as people are coming to faith in Christ, those disciples are now going to be evangelizing. And so on and so forth for 2,000 years of church history leading to us sitting here right now in this moment. Because something that we need to recognize and something we need to remember is that none of us just found Christ on our own. Someone was loving and patient with you and they took the time to invest in your life, they took the time to love you enough to share the gospel with you, to point out the fact that you have a real need in your life, and the remedy, the solution for that need is Christ. And so as we look at verse 20 and we start to look at just what it means that Christ is praying for us as believers, us here and now, we see that Christ is not only praying for us, but he's also praying for those that will come after us, those who will become believers through our preaching of the gospel, those who will become believers because we ourselves are faithful to step out into the world and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Now, the sharing of the gospel and the spreading of the good news of the kingdom is a big theme in the entire New Testament, and rightly so, but I think it's, it's really succinctly put in one verse in Acts 1.8. So we're going to look at that briefly. In Acts 1-8, the resurrection has already taken place, and Jesus is getting ready to ascend back to the Father. And so he gets with his disciples, and he tells them this right before he ascends. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, if you've been around Solid Rock for any length of time, or if you've hung around me or anybody on the mission team for any length of time, or if you've gone on any of our trips or gone to any of our outreaches, you know that Acts 1-8 is pretty paradigmatic for how we as a church view missions. We view uh, Fort Worth area, West Fort Worth, as our Jerusalem This is our city that we go out into. And then we have, so that's our local emphasis. Then we have our national emphasis, which would be our Judea, our Samaria. And then, of course, we have going out into the ends of the world, taking the gospel, being faithful as we go. And we see that the disciples are going to be faithful to take that gospel, to take the, the commission seriously and share their faith with those around them. And as we see that they are faithful, we have to ask ourselves, are we being faithful to share the gospel? Are we being faithful to the commission? Are we being faithful to step out in faith and share the gospel with someone, even though we might be, I don't know, rejected, persecuted, even made fun of, rejected and and just cast aside as friends and relationships might potentially break apart because we take that stand and we share the gospel with those around us. Now, some of us might be scared that that's a real thing that could happen, some of us might rest in that fear and say, no, 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 I I don't need to really share the gospel. 
I don't really need to do that. I can just live a good life, be a good person, and that will be enough because then people will see how I act and how I believe and how I behave, and then they'll be interested and curious, and they'll ask me about my faith. Well, then, then I can talk to them about it. Or you might be on the other end of the spectrum where you might have heard this teaching, well, if God is so sovereign, I don't really even need to share the gospel. There's no need to preach the word to anybody because God is so powerful and God is so sovereign that he's gonna draw people to himself and he's gonna save who he wills no matter what we do or don't do. Well, I think the reality with those two situations is this, that both of those rest essentially in this idea of fear and comfort. We're afraid to share the gospel because it can be intimidating. It can be stressful and anxiety-inducing to step to someone and say, hey, we need to talk about sin and your need for grace, your need for Christ. And there's a comfort in saying, no, 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 if I just live a good life, people will be curious and ask me about my faith. And there's also a comfort in saying that God is sovereign and he will just save people regardless of what we do. But fortunately for us, the Apostle Paul is going to challenge us to this in Romans 10. So we're going to look at Romans 10 really briefly. In Romans 10, Paul is talking about how the message of salvation is meant for every single person to hear. And in Romans 10, Paul is going to describe to us the need and the way that the faith is shared by sharing the gospel. So Romans 10, 14 says, this. How then will they, that's unbelievers, how then will they call on him, that would be God, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now Paul goes on to talk about preachers being sent out into the world, and he even says that those who proclaim the good news have beautiful feet. I think something Paul recognizes, and I think something that we desperately need to recognize is that each and every one of us has been sent out into our world. Each and every one of us has been sent out into the world as preachers and proclaimers of God's message of salvation. And we each go to our own different fields of mission work. Each and every one of us are missionaries. Each of us have our own unique jobs and our own unique neighborhoods, friends, family, that you have that influence and you have that opportunity to share the gospel with them that nobody else has. And so we are being sent out into the world and into these specific places so that we can proclaim the good news of the gospel. And so in a way... When we look at verse 20 of John 17, we see that Christ is praying for us. Christ is praying for those who will come after us. And so in some way, he's, he's even praying that we will be faithful to share the gospel. We will be faithful to, to take the words about Christ into the world, to draw others to Christ. So we see as Christ is beginning to He's beginning to pray for us. We're going to see what he's praying for us about. So we're going to pick back up in verse 21. So Jesus is praying for us, and he says, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
So we see that Jesus is praying for us, and he's praying for something very, very specific for us. And it's not that we would be kept safe from harm. It's not that we would be kept healthy for the rest of our days. It's not that we would have a nice, nice cushy job and a nice nest egg to fall back on when we're ready to retire. He doesn't pray for anything like that. Jesus prays for our unity. He prays that we would be united together in the same manner that Christ is in the Father. Now, that's very interesting to think about that Jesus is praying for that specific thing right now. In this moment, in John 17, he's looking forward to the cross, and he's praying for us that we would be unified. I mean, he answers the question, why, in that very verse. He says that our unity, our being one together, is a sign. It is a witness to the world of something. It's a witness to the world that the Father has sent the Son And so our unity in and of itself is an evangelistic tool to spread the gospel, to point that the Father has sent the Son into the world. So our unity is really important. But I wonder how often is it that we would, more often than not, actually walk in sort of functional disunity? I mean, has any of you ever been angry with someone in the church? Not just, not just leadership, not just the elders or the pastors or the other staff members, but just you know, someone in your community group, someone who you have a deep relationship with. Have you ever been hurt by someone? Have you ever been angry with someone in the church? Have you ever shared a prayer request that's really gossip? Mm, that's a form of disunity. Have you ever said something about another believer that's just not even true? Well, that's also disunity. Have we ever judged another believer because they don't measure up to our standards? They don't think the way we think they should. They don't dress the way we think they should. They don't behave the way we think they should. Judging someone based on a non-biblical standard. Now, to be fair, we are called to hold one another accountable, to hold one another up against the standards that the Bible has set up for us. But we're not to do so standing in judgment of our brothers and sisters. We're to do so in love, encouraging and calling them back to where they're supposed to be. So we have this functional disunity that we tend to walk around in. And now this problem of unity versus disunity, it's not something that just happens here within Solid Rock because you and I all know believers that aren't members of our church. You might, be, you might have family members that are Christians or you might have coworkers that are Christians, neighbors that are believers. You might even know missionaries in other countries who have churches of their own that they've planted of other believers And we have a functional unity with each and every one of those believers as well. Now, you might be asking, well, how do we have this basis of unity? How does this actually work? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you. Jesus drops a couple hints throughout John 17 about how we are actually unified together. Because our unity is so important, he drops these hints all throughout this chapter. But I want to actually take a step Uh, or two back and look at John 14 where Jesus is talking about the sending of the Holy Spirit. So in John 14, verse 20, Jesus says this. In that day, the day that the Holy Spirit comes, 
you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, that means that if I am in Christ and you are in Christ, we are united together in Christ. And if we are together in Christ, then if Christ is in the Father, then you and I are united together in the Father. So our unity, our basis for our unity, our unification of being one people together is rooted in nothing more and nothing less than our relationship with God. Now that's big, that's, that's quite, quite huge. Because that means that we're now able to have relational unity with other believers wherever we go in the world. If they are in Christ, then you are united to them. They are your brothers, they are your sisters, and we can have unity. Now, I believe that this unity is expressed in a common set of beliefs and common practices that the universal church has done throughout time and throughout history. But before we look at how that unity is expressed, I want to take a brief moment and I want to look at how we move from being isolated individuals who are dead in our sin to being united to one another in Christ. I can't think of a better example of how this works than looking at Ephesians 2, where Paul is talking about that movement of believers going from being dead in their sin to being united in Christ. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12, Paul says this, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. At one point in time, before you were in Christ, you were separated, alienated, and isolated from yourself, or not from yourself, from others and from God. You were a stranger to God's promises and his covenants, and there was hostility between you and every other person that you came in contact with, and hostility between you and God. But our God is rich in mercy, and he sent his son to die on that cross, and on that cross, he accomplished so many beautiful things. In his flesh, through his blood, he tore down the walls of hostility that separate us from one another. So now, we don't have any basis for hostility between any of us if we are in Christ. Now, originally, Paul was, going to be, Paul was talking about the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. 
But I believe that this goes far beyond that and applies to us here and now and any hostility that the world says we're supposed to have against one another and between one another, we know is now gone because of Christ. Because of his work on the cross, there is no hostility between us. We all have that deep, intimate unity and relationship with one another. But not only that, Paul says that on the cross, through his death, we are united together into one new body, and then we are reconciled to God. Paul says that the cross saw the hostility between us and God killed. So now we are able to be united together in one, as one, in Christ, in the Father. And our unity is an expression and a witness of the gospel that Christ came. Now like I said a moment ago, I believe that our unity is expressed uh, practically in a common belief system and a common set of practices. Now normally in, in times in the past you would see this expressed as some sort of creed or statement um, and so I just kind of summed up what I think a lot of Christians have believed throughout the entire world throughout the 2,000 years of church history and so I'm, I'm just going to read this for a moment. It says, we believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three persons in one God. We believe that Christ came in the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary to conceive Christ. We believe that Christ lived a perfectly sinless life of obedience to the Father in order that he could suffer and die the death that we rightly deserved. And after his resurrection, he instituted the church by pouring out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And Christ gave us specific practices that we as a church are supposed to practice. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. As a universal church, we pray to God, we study the scriptures, we love others as God has loved us, and we share the gospel with those around us. These are the things that the church throughout time and throughout all over the world, this is the things that the church has done. Now that's how we have this, this practical unity that plays out globally but then locally we also have unity here as well among us and that's practically expressed through our common beliefs and our common practices so i took this from our preamble if you will to our statement of faith and so it says at solid rock we consider our doctrine to be our primary beliefs that unify us as a church and we consider our stances to be guides on practical tertiary issues that guide our practices, but do not divide us as a church. Our doctrine, or non-negotiable beliefs, expressed in our statement of faith, is derived from clear biblical teachings and mandates. So we are united in Christ, and practically we have this shared doctrine, the shared beliefs in the Bible, and in the Father, and in the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God, and how he has saved us, and beliefs about his word and the church and the state of humanity. And these are our practical shared beliefs. So we see they have unity with global Christians, we have unity locally, and as we are faithful to take the gospel out into the world, as we are faithful to take the Great Commission serious, we see that we will come in contact with other believers in other parts of the world. And if they are in Christ, if they are rooted in him, then we are united with them and we can share in their work. We can come alongside them and partner with them so that we can also be working with them to make disciples of the nations. We can 
be seeing baptisms of believers and the church grow and expand as people are being faithful to sharing the gospel all over the world. Because this is our mission, to make disciples. Let's continue on in verse 22 of chapter 17. Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Christ asks the Father that we be given the glory that Christ himself has had. Now it's interesting to think that we're given this glory because it's not because we're perfect, it's not because we have it all together, it's not because we're super Christians and rock stars that get everything right all the time, no. Once again, it's because of our unity with the Father and our unity with one another that we are given this glory. And as Jason preached a couple weeks ago, what are we to do with this glory? We're not to hold it in and keep it to ourselves, keep it within our church walls, no. We are to take this glory and reflect it back out into the world. Use that mirror and reflect his goodness and his loving kindness and his steadfastness and his mercy and his grace to those who are in need of it. That is why we get the glory that Christ has had so that we can reflect it out into the world. And as we have this unity with one another and we have this glory to us, given to us by Christ, we see this unity and this glory mixed together and it's working its way out into the world as a witness that the Father has sent the Son and that the Father loves us just as he has loved the Son. Then in verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me before you loved me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Christ has a desire, and he's praying to the Father, asking, asking that this desire be fulfilled. And this desire that Christ has is for us to be with him, to be in his presence, to be in his midst. Because when we are in his presence, when we are in his midst, then we are able to step into and experience something that is beautiful and majestic to behold. And that is the full glory of God. Now, here in this life, in this moment, on, our, on earth, while we are in this flesh, we get these little glimpses of this glory. We get these little snippets and glimmers of this glory that God has given to us and allowed us to see. And more often than not, when we see these little hints of glory in the world, we are awestruck by it because we can see the majesty and the gloriousness and beauty of our God through these little bitty hints of it. So then when we get to be in his presence, when we get to be in his presence fully known and fully see who he is as he is, 
you will get to see the full majesty, the full glory, the full beauty of Christ because we are with him. And in that moment, we can do nothing but worship him. And that is going to be an amazing thing. And at that time that we are worshiping Christ because we see the full beauty and majesty of who he is, at that very same moment, we know that we are also in deep, deep intimate community with him, deep relationship with him and united with him. And what we are called to do is we are called to invite others to be into that fellowship with us. We are called to invite others to see that glory. We are called to invite others to witness and step into and experience the glory and majesty of our King. And I think that when we hear that we are to live the mission in our everyday lives, I want us to to actually hear what those words mean. Not to just hear the phrase and go, yeah, yeah, we're supposed to live the mission in our everyday lives. It's part of our vision, so that's what we do. I want us to move past that thought and go, what does it mean? Well, just like with everything else, I think the Bible perfectly illustrates and explains what it means for us to live the mission in our everyday lives. In 1 John 1.3, the apostle who wrote this gospel that we've been studying says this, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what does it mean for us to live the mission in our everyday lives? It is us being faithful and intentional with the people we come in contact with. It is us being intentional to pour out our time and our love and our affection to those around us, especially those who do not know who Christ is. Now these people are not projects for us. And if they reject the gospel, then we reject them and cast them aside to go find someone else. That's not loving. That is not based in the gospel. Because that person is made in the image and likeness of God. We love them as Christ has loved us. As we have been loved, so we are to love. And we are to continually invite people into that fellowship with us and with the Father and the Son. Christ says that he, is going, he has made known to us the Father's name. And he is going to continue to make it known. And I believe that Christ is saying that He's going to continue to make it known as we are faithful to take the gospel out into the world. As we are being faithful to live the mission in our everyday lives, Christ is going to be faithful to make the name of the Father known. Because there are people who are in this world who are dead in their sin. And they are in desperate need of the grace that we know that we have been given because we think about the darkness that's in this world right now. Nick brought this up last week where he pointed out that there's this deep-seated darkness that over the past few years has become much more evident and prevalent in our lives. But Nick also noted that it's not something new, that this darkness has settled over the earth and has been here since Genesis 3. 
And as we think about this darkness, and as we look at this darkness, we know that we have that cure. We have that gospel that we can offer to those around us. So as we, as we begin to wrap up today, I only have two questions for us to reflect on, just two. The first is this. In what ways do you need to actively seek unity with other believers? Is it a relationship that needs to see reconciliation take place? Is it sin that needs to be confessed? And then you need to ask for forgiveness. Or maybe it's learning more about our shared doctrine and our shared common practices. If that's the case, then I would suggest signing up for our Welcome to SR class. But how can you actively seek unity with other believers this week? And then finally, what ways can you be reflecting the goodness and glory of God into the world? Like I said earlier, each and every one of us has our own unique platform and opportunities that we alone have that God has given to us. How can you leverage those platforms and those opportunities for the gospel and for God's kingdom this week? Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for your word and how you have prayed for us, how you have prayed for those who came before us and that they were faithful to share the gospel and God, how you prayed for us and how we would be faithful to share the gospel with those who have yet to become believers. God, we ask that you give us just clarity and unity together so that we can have a practical unity that reflects the goodness of who you are to this world and is a witness to an unbelieving world that you have sent your son who loves us and who died for us. God, give us the strength and the wisdom that we need to share the gospel with those around us, to take the message of hope and salvation that you have given to us out into the world that needs it, to take it into our workplaces, into our schools, into our homes, and our neighborhoods, so that we can see the gospel spread, so that we can see people come to faith, so that we can see restoration and reconciliation take place. God, help us as we continue in this worship service to stir our hearts and our affections and make us more to the image of your son. And we love you and we praise you for your goodness and your mercy towards us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.